Part One of Venus Enslaved. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Shinever, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Venus Enslaved by Manly Wade Wellman. Part One. This story was first published in Planet Stories, Summer, 1942. Black velvet infinity all around, punctured and patterned with the many-hued jewels of space, comforting somehow, because they made the same constellation patterns you used to see on Earth. There was the Dipper, there Scorpio, there Orion, but the twinkle was shut off as though every star had turned cold and silently watchful toward your impudent invasion of emptiness. So big was the universe that the little recess, which did duty for control room, observation point, and living cabin, seemed even smaller than it was, which was very small indeed. Planter forgot the dizzy lightness of head and body here beyond gravity, and turned his wondering eyes outward from where he lay strapped in his spring-jointed hammock toward the firmament, and decided that there was nothing in all his past life that he would change if he could. "'Check blast tempo,' came the voice of Dispro, just beyond his head, a high, harsh, commanding voice. "'Check lubrication loss and check sun direction. Then brace yourself.' We may land quicker than we thought. Planter leaned toward the instrument panel that covered most of the bulkhead to the right of his hammock. The pale glow from the dials highlighted his face, young, bony, intent. Blast tempo adequate, he called back to Dispro. Lubrication lost about 7.2, 3.96 degrees off sunward. Air loss, nil. Who asked for air loss? snubbed Dispro from his hammock forward. He was leaner than Planter, taller, older. Even in his insulated coveralls, bulking against whatever temperature or pressure danger might be threatened by the outer space, he was of a dangerous elegance of figure and attitude. His face, framed in tight-cushioned helmet, was so narrow that it seemed compressed sidewise. Dark eyes crowded together with only a disdainful blade of nose between them, a mouth short but strong, a chin like the pointed toe of a stylish boot, a cropped black mustache. Back on lost earth Dispro had frightened men and fascinated women. His cunning crime administration had been almost too neat for the police, but not quite or he would not have been here with his life barely held in his elegant fingertips. "'Venus Plum Center ahead,' he told Planter. "'Have a look.' That last, as if he were granting a favor. Planter twisted in the hammock. He saw the taut-slung cocoon that would be Dispro's netted body, the control board like a bigger, more complex typewriter, where Dispro could reach and strike key combinations to steer, speed, or otherwise maneuver the ship. Beyond, a great round port, at its middle a disk the size of a tabletop. Against the black airless sky, most of that disk looked as blue as the thinnest of milk. 
One smooth edge was brightened to cream, the sunward limb of Venus. But even the dimmer expanse showed fluffy and gently rippling a swaddling of opaque cloud. That, said Dispro, is our little gray home in the west. I wonder what's underneath the clouds, mused Planter for the millionth time. All those science pots, sitting home on the seat of their expensive striped pants, wonder that, snarled Dispro. That's why they sent eight rockets before us, smack into the cloud. That's why, with eight silences out of a possible eight, they rigged this knife. That's why, when nobody was fool enough to volunteer, they dug up three convicts who were all neatly earmarked to be killed anyway, and gave them a bang at the job. Three convicts. Planter, Dispro, and Max. Planter had forgotten Max, as everyone was apt to, including Max himself. For Max had been a sturdy athlete, a coming heavyweight champion, until too many gaily accepted blows had done something to his mind. Doctors said some concussion unbalanced him, but not far enough so that he didn't know right and wrong apart when he killed his manager for cheating on certain gate receipts. And so prison and a sentence to the chair, with the reprieve that came by recommendation of the Rocket Foundation on March 30, 2082. Now Max was in the compartment aft, keeping the levers kicking that ran the rocket engines. Show Max how to do a thing, and he'd keep right on doing it until you pulled him away, or until he dropped. What would Max's last name be, wondered Planter. He studied the face of Venus. He sang to himself softly, O thou sublime sweet evening star! Softly, but not too softly for Dispro's excellent ears. Dispro chuckled. <laughs> you know opera, Planter? Pretty fancy for an ex-con. I know that piece, said Planter shortly. Wolfram's Hymn to Venus from Tannhauser. It had started him thinking again. Gwen had played it so often on her violin, played it and sung it. Those were the days he hadn't known she was married, down in her red-and-gold apartment at the artist's quarters. He'd been sculpting her. She had the second-best figure he ever saw. Then he found out about her husband, for the husband burst in upon them. The husband had tried to kill Planter, but Planter had killed the husband, and Gwen had sworn his life away. Check elapsed time, Dispro bade him. Fifty-eight days, nine hours, and fifty-four minutes, point seven, rejoined Planter at once. Prompt, aren't you? We'll be on Venus before the sixty-fourth day. Planter saw Dispro shift over in his hammock. I'm going to shave, then eat. Dispro turned a stud in the wall. His electric razor began to hum. Planter opened a locker valve and brought forth his own rations, a pack of concentrated solid, compounded of chocolate, meat extract, several vitamin agents. It would sustain him for hours, but was anything but a fill to his hunger. He chewed it slowly to make it last longer, and sipped from a snipe-nosed container of water slightly effervescent and acidulated. 
A few drops escaped between snout and lip, and swam lazily in the gravityless air of the cabin like shiny little bubbles. Planter, said Dispro, suddenly pleasant, we're going to fool em. He shut off his razor. Planter took another nibble. Yes, Dispro? We'll land at the North Pole. Planter shook his head. We can't. This rocket is set at midpoint on the Venusian disk. We can. I've tinkered with the controls. A break for us, no break for the Foundationeers at home. They're watching us through telescopes. What they want is our crash on Venus with a great upflare of the exploding fuel. Then they'll know that we landed and can shake hands all round on a successful advancement. But we're curving away, then in. I've fixed that. We'll not blow off and make any signal, but we'll live. North Pole, mused Planter pensively. No spin to Venus up there. We'll land solidly. We'll land where it's coolest and none too cool. Her equator must be two degrees hotter than Satan's reception hall. The pole may be endurable. What then? asked Planter. We'll live, I say. Don't you want to live? Planter hadn't thought about it lately, but suddenly he knew that he did want to live. His was a family of considerable longevity. His grandfather had attained the age of one hundred and seven, and had claimed to remember the end of the Second World War. Six days to study it over, Dispero was saying. Then we'll have a try. If we land alive, we'll laugh. If we die trying, we'll have nothing to worry about. Float up here, will you? Take over. I'm going to have a little sleep. Through choking steam, white and ever-swirling, drove the silvery cigar that was the ninth rocket ship to attempt to voyage across space. From its snout blossomed sudden flame, blue and red and blue again, rocket counterblasts that were designed to act as brakes. They worked somewhat. The speed cut from bullet rate to falling rate, from falling rate to flying rate. Then of a sudden, partial clarity around it. Within an upper envelope of blinding vapors, Venus had a thinner atmosphere, partially transparent. Below showed a surface of fluffy greens, all sorts of greens. Lettuce, apple, olive, emerald, spinach, sea greens. Vegetation plainly, and lots of it. The ship, steadying in its plunge like a skilled diver, nosed across toward a wet slate-dark patch that must be open ground. From the stern, where rocket tubes had ceased blasting, broke out a massive expanse of fabric, a parachute, another and another. Down floated the craft, thudding at last upon its resting place. Planter felt a cramping pain. He realized that to feel pain one must be alive. Then his head throbbed. It hung head downward. Gravity was back. He groped for his hammock fastenings, loosened them, and lowered himself to a standing position beneath, on the round port that had been forward. Dispero hung in his hammock, 
motionless but moaning faintly. Planter hurriedly freed him and laid him flat on his back. He fumbled a locker open, brought out a water-pot. A little spurt between Dispro's short, scornful lips brought him back to consciousness. "'We made it!' was Dispro's first comment, full of triumph and savagery. "'Help me up. Thanks. Ooh, we seem to have socked in somewhere nose first. He was right. No sign of light or open air showed through the forward port, nor the side ports from which Planter had been wont to study the reaches of space. Dispro looked up. The after bulkhead, now their ceiling, had a hatchway. Hoist me, he said to Planter, who made a stirrup of his hands and obliged. The slightly less gravitational pull of Venus made Dispro more active than on Earth. He caught Planter's hammock, got his foot on a side bracket for steadiness, and climbed up to the hatch. A tug at the clamps opened it, and he wriggled through. "'Wake up, you big buffalo!' Planter heard him snarling. Max was evidently unconscious up there. Planter, without a helper to lift him, made shift by climbing Dispro's hammock, then his own to gain the compartment above. "'He'd have died if he had an ounce of brains,' commented Dispero, pointing. Max lay crumpled against the bulkhead close to the great bank of levers he had been working. In his hands were grasped broken pieces of network from his hammock. "'He was out of the lashings when we landed,' Dispero went on. "'We were about to hit, and he grabbed hold. He must have passed out. But the big lump single-minded. Abnormally so.' He hung on without knowing, and the breaking of those strands kept him from crashing full force. Planter knelt and pulled Max straight. Max was tremendous, a burly troll in his coveralls. His shoulders were almost a yard wide, his hands like oversized gloves. His big face, with its broad jaw, heavy dark brows, and ruddy cheeks, might have been handsome was not the nose smashed in by a blow taken in some old ring battle. "'Don't waste water,' cautioned Dispero, as Planter hunted for the food-locker. "'I'll bring him out of it.' He knelt and slapped the inert face sharply. Max's mouth opened, showing a gap where his front teeth had been beaten out. He gave a grumbling yell, then sprang erect so suddenly that Dispero, starting away, almost fell through the hatchway. Max saw Planter, scowled and snorted, then fell into a boxing stance. He inched forward, his mighty fists fiddling hypnotically. "'Time!' yelled Planter at once. "'This isn't a fight, Max. We've landed, safe and alive, on Venus.' Max's eyes widened a little. He grinned loosely and pulled off his helmet. His skull was thatched with bushy black hair. "'Oh!' he said in a deep, chiding tone. "'I forgot. Uh. "'Forgot?' echoed Dispro scornfully. "'He sounds as if he had the ability to remember.' Planter studied the ports in this compartment. They, too, were obscured by wet-looking grail soil. The ship must be well buried in the crust of Venus. What if it was completely submerged, a tomb for them? 
He glanced upward to another hatchway, one that would lead past the rocket engines. "'Don't go up,' Max cautioned him throatily. "'Hot up there!' "'Brilliant!' was Dispro's ill-humored rejoinder. "'Max actually knows that the engines will be hot.' Planter clapped Max on the big shoulder. "'It'll be all right,' he reassured the giant. "'Get me a wrench, will you? That long-shanked one for tightening tube-housings will do.' He scrambled up along the levers, which made a ladder of sorts. The hatch to the engines had to be loosened with a wrench. Beyond, as Max had sagely warned him, it was stifling hot. He avoided gleaming, sweltering tubes and housings, scrambling to where a four-foot circle of nuts showed in the bulkheading. This would be the plate that closed the central stem among the rear rocket jets. He began to loosen one. "'Stop that, you fool!' It was Dispro who had climbed after him and was watching. Who knows about this lower atmosphere of Venus? I'm going to find out about it, replied Planter, a little roughly, for he did not like Dispro's manner. He gave the nut another turn. Wait, wait, cautioned Dispro. He climbed all the way into view, holding up a glass flask with a neck attachment of gauges and pipings. I got a sample through the lock panel. Plenty of air bubbles were carried down with us. Let me work it out before you do anything heroic." Dispro was right. He was usually right about technologies. Planter mopped his brow on the sleeve of his coverall and waited. "'Yes,' Dispro was commenting. "'Oxygen. Nice article of that, and plenty nitrogen, too. Just like Earth. Quite a bit of carbon dioxide. It'll be from all that vegetation. Certified breathable. Go on and unship that plate." Planter did so. He loosed the last nut and pushed against the plate. It stirred easily. The after part of the ship would still be in the open. Dispro, climbing after him, caught his elbow. "'I go out first, he announced. They marked me down as senior of the expedition. One side.' Planter stared quizzically and once again did as Dispro told him. The lean man thrust up the plate like a trapdoor and crept out. "'At last!' he yelled back. "'Men on Venus! Come on, Planter!' Planter called back to Max, who was bringing up a bundle of articles Dispro had chosen for the venture outside. Two repeating rifles, two pistols, several tools, and tins of food, coils of rope. Planter helped him with the load, and they got outside with it. Dispro had slid down the steep bulge of the hull. He clung to a grab-iron, his feet just above the gray muck into which they had plunged. He stared up. First man to set foot on Venus,' he was saying. "'Who was second of you two? "'We didn't stop to bother,' Planter replied. "'What now?' He stared around to answer his own question. Venus was dull, like a very cloudy day at home. The air was moist but fresh, and little wreaths and veils of mist kept one from seeing far. But he made out that they had found lodgment in a sterile-looking clearing with a muddy floor that might or might not sustain a man's weight. All around was a crowded wall of vegetation, towering high above the range of his vision into upper fog, 
tight grown as a hedge and vigorously fat of twig and leaf. Planter, no botanists, yet was aware at once of strangeness beyond his power to describe. He knew that specimens would be gathered and preserved to take home. To take home? Home to earth? <laughs> but the ship was almost buried in its mud. He remembered Disbro's dry comment, Our little gray home in the west. They were on Venus, undoubtedly to stay. Max beside him gave a sort of gurgling bellow of surprise and fear. Oh, something's got Mr. Disbro. For once Max was being articulate. For once Disbro was being silent. Glancing down, Planter saw the slender, elegant figure writhe close against the metal hull, clutching with both hands the grab-iron. Dispro stared groundwards, and what could be seen of his face was as white as a wood-boring grub. One of his legs was drawn up, knee-bracing against the plates, the other stretched out grotesquely, as if to point a toe at something in the muck. It took a second staring study to realize that a whip-like strand of something that gleamed and tightened was snapped around Dispro's ankle. "'Rope, Max,' snapped Planter. He made a quick hitch around a rocket tube and lowered himself in a rush. His free hand grasped the heavy automatic pistol. He paused in his descent just above Dispro, studying the black, shiny tether. It protruded from the semi-glutinous mud, which stirred and quivered around the protrusion. A sense was there of rigid grasp and slowly contracting pressure. It was squeezing the captured ankle. It was shortening itself to pull Dispro down. Dispro said nothing because he had caught his breath for an effort at wrenching free. But he could not do that. His strong, lean fingers were beginning to slip on the grab-iron. He turned horror-widened eyes toward Planter. "'Hang on,' muttered Planter, and aimed his pistol. No sure shot. He nevertheless was close to his target. He fired a fifty-caliber slug, another and another. Two of them hit the tail, tentacle, or proboscis. At once it let go of Dispro gesticulating wildly. Blood sprang forth on its shiny intricament. Venusian blood was red, mused Planter, even as Venusian herbage was green. Dispro gave a choking gurgle that might have been thanks, relief, or effort. A moment later he was swarming up Planter's rope like a monkey. But Planter did not follow. The appendage he had wounded was drawing out of sight like a worm into its hole, but two more just like it had fastened upon his foot and knee. He lost his grip and fell into the mud. It was like a dip into thick gravy. The stuff lapped and closed over his head, and he let go of the pistol to try to swim. A couple of laborious strokes brought him back to the surface, gasping and blowing away thick lumps from nose and mouth. A moment later two more tentacles were groping and seizing at his shoulder and waist. Four bonds now tightened upon him like lariats. Planter seemed to be thinking in two compartments. One set of thoughts dictated his floundering, desperate struggle. 
The other considered the situation with a curiosity dispassionate and almost mild. The creature that snared him was just what he might have expected, something on the octopus order. How many science-fiction stories had dealt with such monsters on strange worlds? The creepy writhings of tentacles appealed to fantasy writers. The neat, simple, active structure of the brute was logical to the great mechanic who devised nature. The thing had him, in any case, if he could not kick or struggle or cut free. Cut free! That was it! He had a knife in the side pocket of his coveralls. He ducked for it, almost dropped it from his muddy fingers, then yanked open the biggest blade. He slashed at the nearest tentacle the one around his waist. It parted like a cane stalk before a machete. The other arms quivered and slackened, plainly shocked by pain. Planter rolled out of their grip, started to swim away anywhere. He looked over his shoulder and saw his enemy as it humped itself partially into view. Not such an octopus, after all. The dispassionate part of Planter's brain called the thing an animated tall tree. The slender tentacles sprouted from a thicker trunk that could curve and writhe and wallow, but not so readily. It was of a rubbery gray-brown, and at the upper end, nestled among the tentacle roots, was what must be its mouth. That mouth opened and shut in almost wistful hunger. Planter swam furiously. He wanted to reach and climb the stem of the rocket ship, but the thing knew his wish and moved to head him off. He kicked and fought his way toward the far mass of leaves that bordered this mud pit. From among those leaves glowed for an instant a sort of splinter of yellow light. A small object sang over Planter's helmeted head like a bee and struck behind him with a little chuck. It must have found lodgment against the hull tree thing, which paused in its pursuit to flop and spatter the mud with its tentacles. Planter blessed the diversion, whatever it was, and strove nearer to the shore. The forest was alive, he suddenly decided. Out of its misty tangle a great leafy branch swung knowingly toward him. He clutched at it brought away a fat, moist handful of strange-shaped leaves. His other hand made good its hold on the branch itself, and with the last of his strength he dragged himself to where roots hummocked above the mud. Then he saw where the branch had come from. A slim, active figure stood among the stems, pressing with both hands upon the base of the branch to make it move into the open. As Planter scrambled to safety, the figure relaxed its helpful shoving, and the branch moved back toward the perpendicular. Planter gazed in utter, lost unbelief at this stranger. It was a woman, young, fair, fine-limbed. She wore the briefest of garments, belted around with strange weapons, and her feet were shod in cross-gartered buskins. Upon her tumble of golden curls rode a metal helmet that reminded him of Grecian antiquity. Her bare arms, round but strong, cradled something with a stock and butt of a musket, but with a short, tight-strung bow at its muzzle, surely the pattern of a medieval crossbow. 
Her face was of a flawless pink and white beauty, just now stamped with utter disdain. Its short rosy mouth opened and formed words. Words that Planter understood. "'You fool!' said the girl with the crossbow. "'You scurvy fool!' End of Part 1